But uh, here's a list of what I think are probably 10 significant moments which shaped our modern world, okay? So I'm just going to bang through them, and then you've got a challenge to do at the end of it. So the first one, as I said, on the 28th of June, 1914, Archduke Franz Ferdinand was assassinated, which was unfortunate for him and unfortunate for a whole lot of other people because that started World War I. 24th of October, 1929, the stock market crashed, uh, causing the Great Depression. 6th of August, 1945, uh, the atomic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which technically ended World War II. On the 15th of August, 1947, India gained independence from uh, the British, British Empire. On the 5th of October, 1962, the Beatles released Love Me Do. Yeah. 20th of July, 1969, Apollo 11 moon landing. Um, on the 1st of January, 1983, a little bit debatable, but some people say this, uh, this was the date, the birth of the internet. Um, uh, the 10th of May, 1994, Nelson Mandela became president in South Africa, and on the 11th of September, 2001, uh, terrorist attacks on America. So those are 10 significant moments, very, very crucial moments which shaped our modern world. And your challenge is to try and decide what you think are the five most important from that list, okay? You're allowed to talk about this with other people that you're sitting beside. Um, if you don't want to talk to them, just close your eyes and pretend that you're figuring out in your head, okay? <laughs> but I'm going to give you a couple of minutes to have a quick chat, figure out what you think is the top five, and then we'll do a quick survey, uh, and then we'll see where we end up. Okay, it sounds like um, sort of by the hushed murmur that most of you have landed on your top five. <clears throat> so I'm pretty interested to see where we've got to uh, and just sort of see like, you know, the historical minds that are floating out there. So um, it's the best way to do this. All right, well, we'll what I'm going to do is I'm going to say some of these events and if they were in your top one or your top two, just put your hand up or jump up and yell or scream or whatever, okay? All right, so um, start of World War One. Okay, cool, good to know, good to know. Stock market crash, the Great Depression, etc. Okay, this is, remember this is in your top one or two, okay? The Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Hmm, interesting, good, good, good. Okay, India's independence. Oh, petty! Yeah, oh, yeah, nice. All right. Uh, what about the Beatles? Cultural revolution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought so. Um, the moon landing. Yep. Okay. Petty, you voted three times. You're only supposed to vote for your top two. That's okay. That's fine. Are you probably voting all the things that you remember? It's like, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, I remember that. Okay. Right. Um, internet. The birth of the internet. Yeah. Look at all you modern people. Okay, um, oh, I missed the fall of the Berlin Wall, sorry, when I was doing that. Did anyone vote for that? Probably not. Okay, oh, cool, sweet. Okay, nice. Um, Nelson Mandela? Yeah, okay, interesting. And uh, September 11th? 
yeah, okay, that has drastically shaped not only air travel, but a whole lot of other things. Right, now it is kind of hard to evaluate some of this sort of stuff, right? Like whether you are a budding historian or whether you're like, what a waste of time, but it's difficult to evaluate some of the significance of those things. I mean, all of them have been pretty, pretty impactful, pretty influential on our world. What I want to do this morning is roll back the centuries even further and introduce you to a man who on two different days two historical events that he was involved with had a massive influence on, on our modern world. And that person is Martin Luther. So um, in, his, in his 62 years that he was alive, he had a tremendous influence on shaping the modern world. Now you might think that I'm kind of overstating it a little bit, so let me back this up with um, an actual historian, a guy called uh, Dr. Jonathan Hill. He said that Martin Luther was a giant of history, probably the most significant European figure of the second millennium. Now that is a pretty big statement, like in the last thousand years, Martin Luther has been arguably the most significant person. And I'll tell you why. It's because the religious revolution that he started, which has come to be known as the Protestant Reformation, that morphed into a movement which transformed all of Western society. So what started out as basically just an argument over theology blew up into something so much bigger where politics and economics and philosophy and language and art, all of the things, every aspect of our modern society was dramatically impacted and influenced. And let me kind of point this out to you. So Martin Luther, his legacy continues to this day. So these ideas on the screen, social equality, free speech, freedom of religion, individual liberty, democratic voice and limited government. These are ideas which we take for granted and which are increasingly more and more important every day. These are important forces which have shaped our world. Martin Luther opened the door to them. He didn't necessarily agree with all of them, but he certainly, what he did, opened the door. And I think you would, I think you would agree that a lot of these ideas are having a continuing influence as we wrestle with some very modern in, uh, issues. Issues like pandemics, like injustice, like conflict, like climate change. These forces are significant still in our everyday conversations. So uh, another historian put it like this, Luther was the unwitting herald of a new world in which the well-established established boundaries of what was acceptable were exploded, never to be restored. So kind of the things that he did set in motion a whole bunch of stuff beyond what he ever anticipated, which really dramatically changed our world. Now, before we go on a little bit, I probably just want to um, ask, again by way of show of hands, has anybody heard of Martin Luther? He's reasonable or not? Oh, awesome. Okay. In that case, you're not going to get him confused with this other Martin Luther King Jr., who um, was born 450 years after the original Martin Luther, but there was actually an interesting connection, so perhaps you're aware that, that this Martin Luther King Jr., <clears throat> he was originally born Michael King Jr., but his dad was a Baptist pastor, and he was also called Michael King Sr., and he went to Germany for a conference, discovered all about Martin Luther and what he had done, and was so impressed that he decided to take the radical step of changing his name 
to honour the legacy of Martin Luther. So Michael, June, Michael King became Martin Luther King, and at the same time that he changed his name, he changed the name of his five-year-old son to Martin Luther King Jr. So from that moment on, Martin Luther King Jr. was known to the world as that. Interesting, because when he was in his 30s and 40s, he got tangled up in his own revolution around social justice and equality for all people, where people would be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And in an interesting way, his, his emphasis on grace kind of paralleled his predecessor's emphasis on grace four centuries earlier. So a really kind of interesting point there. But if you know anything about this Martin Luther, you'll know that he was famous for two main events. The first one was in the year 1517, when he nailed 95 theses or arguments or ideas to the castle church in Wittenberg. Uh, you can still go to see both places, Wittenberg City and Castle Church in southwest uh, Germany. And then four years later, in the year 21, uh, 1521, he was summoned to appear before a guy called Charles V and a whole bunch of German princes and nobility at the Diet of Worms. Now, it is the stupidest name ever for a church meeting, but it was a church meeting. Um, it was nothing to do with the small wriggly insects and nothing to do with a flash new weight loss program in the medieval world. Diet was the word for meeting, and Worms is the place in Germany. Okay, said with a V rather than a W. Okay, so that's, anyway, what he did at that place was really important. He didn't eat worms. He stood up and boldly declared that he would not renounce his beliefs. Now, as you probably know that, that any historical event, it's not an isolated thing. It doesn't just happen by itself. There's a whole lot of background, a whole lot of build-up. So this morning, just really quickly, we're going to peel back some of the layers and, and try and have a bit of a snapshot of Martin Luther's life. And he originally was uh, on track to be a lawyer. Uh, his father had paid a lot of money <clears throat> for him to have some good study, and his father managed a bunch of mines, and it was going to be very helpful to have his intelligent son be a lawyer to kind of help run the businesses. So Martin Luther went to university, studied, got his undergraduate degree, got a master's degree, and got pretty respectable grades, and was kind of heading down the path of being a lawyer. But all that changed when he was 21. And he got caught in this severe thunderstorm, and out of sheer fear of being struck by lightning, he cried out and he made a vow that if he survived the storm, he would become a monk. Which is quite a radical thing to say in the middle of a thunderstorm, but that's what he did. And he made it through the storm. So he fulfilled his vow. He gave away all his possessions and he joined a monastic community. His father was so furious by this that he didn't speak to Martin Luther for two years. That was not part of the plan. But Martin Luther, he seriously threw himself into the life of a monk, and it seems that from his writings he was, he was driven by a sense of his own sinfulness. So he would pray and pray and pray for hours and hours at a time. And he would fast for days, go days and days without food. He would endure freezing cold nights without uh, a blanket in the middle of winter. And, and in keeping with the religious practice at the time, he would scrupulously confess every sin that he had ever committed for hours 
and hours and hours. So he would spend a lot of time in what was known at the the time was confession, just to try and get to the root of his unrighteousness. But no matter how long he confessed for, no matter how deep he dug, Martin Luther could never shake this feeling of guilt that there was sin lurking deep within his life that he couldn't get out. And he was so terrified of the wrath of God, he, he, he recognized that God was holy and that humans were not holy, and he was frightened of his own inability to live righteously. And if he didn't live righteously, he believed he would suffer God's wrath. This is what he wrote. I, blameless monk that I was, felt that before God I was a sinner with an incredibly guilty conscience. I could not be sure that God was satisfied by what I did to appease him. And so, curiously, this caused uh, what historians have said is a bit of a psycho-spiritual crisis. If Martin Luther were alive today, we would say he had some mental health issues. He had depression, he had anxiety, and these came out on physical symptoms. Uh, He had crushing headaches, cold sweats, nausea, ringing in his ears, and a whole bunch of other things that did not help. And so the stress and the strain really took his toll, took their toll. He lost weight, he became withdrawn, and he began to doubt his salvation. But it was when he was studying the book of Romans and the Bible that he had a breakthrough discovery about the holiness of God. And if you do have a Bible, I'd invite you to open up to Romans. I'm just going to read a couple of lines from the first chapter. Um, this is words that Martin Luther read 500 years ago and transformed his life. Anyway, this is what we read. Uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And after reading that and and wrestling with that and, and meditating it on that, Martin Luther came to realize that there was no way he could ever earn his salvation. That he could never silence the guilt that he was tormented by. It was only God who could do that. In fact, God had done that, had offered that through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so Luther came to discover that actually he was saved not by his works, but by faith in Jesus. His righteousness, this right standing, was actually God's gift to anybody who would believe, to anybody who would have faith in Jesus. And this had a a transformative effect on Luther's life. This is what he writes. The merciful God makes us righteous by faith. As it is written, the righteous will live by faith. All at once, I felt that I had been born again and entered into paradise itself through open gates. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning. Now, we are possibly sitting here this morning, and if you're a Christian, or if you've been around church for a a while, you possibly take this for granted. In fact, you might have been like, well, duh, Martin Luther, hello, it's right there in the Bible, But for Luther and others which he influenced, this was a radical rediscovery of the essential Christian truth. And what you've also got to appreciate is that the common people at the time, they could not read. 
90% of the German population at this point in history were illiterate. And, and on top of not being able to read, they had minimal access to a Bible, virtually no access to a Bible. Bibles uh, were hand-produced, which meant they were very, very expensive. It normally took uh, a year's wages to pay for a Bible. So the only people who would own their own copy of a Bible would be the very, very wealthy, like princes and kings and nobility. And each village or each town would have probably one copy of a Bible, and it would be in the church, and it would be chained to the pulpit. (laughs) So no one stole it. And so people had a very limited opportunities to discover Christian truth for themselves. They had to rely on what the church told them. And in the 16th century, the Christian church was very complex, and there were parts which were quite corrupt. So many church leaders had, had amassed over the years a bunch of political power and a lot of wealth, and they abused the influence that they had. And one of the abuses was an idea that people could earn their salvation by doing good works. And the church fueled this idea because it was actually quite a lucrative source of income. So let me just explain, because it was believed at the time that over the centuries since Jesus, a lot of the saints, a lot of the very holy, prominent Christians had kind of, through their good deeds, had earned credit, right? And the common people, the sinners... They could tap into this credit and have their sins covered by the credit from the other super holy people if they paid the church some money. Now, now we're like, that is ridiculous. But you have to remember that people were very fearful of death and fearful of God's wrath. The medieval period was a really tough time to live. And so the church took advantage of that, and if people paid some money, they would, the church would issue them a certificate which saying that their sins were pardoned. Okay, and you can see the guy there, not a certificate, paying the money, boom, done deal. So when Martin Luther came along and he said, hang on, you cannot earn your salvation, it's only God who saves us through our belief and faith. This was really radical. This, this was a huge pushback on that corrupt practice. And so uh, on the 31st of October, 1517, 504 years ago from today, Martin Luther went down to his local church and he nailed 95 ideas, things that he thought were wrong and needed to be fixed, And he nailed them to the church door, which was basically like the the local community notice board. And he hoped to start an academic debate amongst him and a bunch of other theologians to kind of just, you know, work some of this stuff out. But what happened was his paper was taken down from the church door, and it was printed, and it was spread across Germany. And that sparked so much more than a debate, that that lit a fire which launched a movement which radically reshaped not only the church but our modern world. And so for the next four years, Martin Luther began to write books and he preached sermons and he highlighted a lot of the injustices and the unbiblical practices that the church leadership were promoting. Now, after a while, the church leaders, particularly the Pope in Rome, were not happy about this. 
They felt that his challenge, they were challenging, uh, he was challenging their power and their prestige. So they summoned Martin Luther to explain his theology. And so on the 17th of April, 1521, he appeared at this meeting in Worms, and it was intense. The most powerful person in the world, the Holy Roman Emperor, a guy called Charles V, he was there, you can see him just sitting up there with the crown, surrounded by German nobility, princes, powerful leaders. They were all there in their finest clothes, in their trappings of wealth and power, and Martin Luther was standing there as a humble monk in his simple tunic in front of them. And in the middle of the room was a table with 25 books and writings of Martin Luther's, and he was asked two questions. Are these your books, and do you want to recant? Do you want to renounce anything you've written in them? And Martin Luther responded with words which have echoed down through the centuries. This is what he said. Unless I'm convinced by the testimony of Scripture or by clear reason, for I do not trust the Pope or church councils, decrees, because it is well known that they can make mistakes and contradict themselves. I'm bound by the scriptures I've quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not take back anything, since it's neither safe nor right to go against conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. Boom! That's what I reckon he should have finished with, but he didn't. But it would have been cool. Or if he had a microphone, just drop it and walk away. But he didn't. Okay? But perhaps you've noticed there was a subtle but very significant shift in his convictions. So when he, when he first made that realization that salvation was through faith alone, back when he wrote the, the 95 Theses ideas, he's since gone a step further. And he's pointed out that it's actually Scripture and not the church leaders where the authority really sits. And so these two ideas, which came to be known as faith alone and scripture alone, became really the two pillars of the Protestant Reformation. Which is fascinating because Luther's greatest theological legacy, these two positions, none of them are original. So if you roll back even a thousand years before him, Augustine, who you may remember from... Uh, several weeks ago, he pointed out the primacy of faith over works. But over the centuries that had been obscured, like the church had, had kind of demanded uh, that people earn their salvation through works because it kind of gave them some cash. But Luther realized that was futile. It was like when he was a monk, he just endlessly confessed and he was on this constant treadmill, never making any progress. It was only when he discovered that he could escape that through faith in the cross of Jesus. If he would accept God's love and trust in Jesus, that was when he could see change happen. If you want to flick over the page to Romans chapter 3, this is another crucial truth which Luther rediscovered, I suppose. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in His grace, freely makes us right in His sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when He freed us from the penalty of our sins. 
For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. You know, Luther rediscovered God's grace. But he also realized that God's grace was not a license to just go and behave however we wanted. Like Christians are called to live well. And good works are actually a demonstration of that faith. They reveal our response to God's grace. He put it like this. It is just as impossible to separate faith and works as it is to separate heat and light from fire. Martin Luther felt that the church had flipped the order. They'd elevated good works and they'd minimized faith in God's grace. And I wonder if sometimes that's, that's true for all of us. You know, we're, we're working hard to earn God's favor. We want good things. We want him to bless us. Because that's, that's kind of the way the world works, you know. Work hard, get rewarded. But that's not necessarily the way God works. He generously gives grace to those who simply trust and believe in him. Who genuinely want to live a life of faith. And for Luther, he found that that way of faith, that life, to live that out could be found in the Bible, that God's word was the ultimate authority for Christian belief and Christian practice. So when he made his, start, his stand, surrounded by the nobility, Emperor Charles, when he made his stand uh, at, the, at the city of Worms, he literally put his life on the line. By refusing to recant, he was essentially signing his own death warrant. And the church condemned Luther as a heretic as a result of that, and they issued a warrant for his arrest and his capture. But thankfully, Luther had some uh, powerful friends, and on the journey home, he was secretly kidnapped by his friends. And he hid out in a castle for a year, uh, so giving some time for the authorities to kind of cool off. And he made some good use of that time too. He spent uh, those months translating the New Testament into the German language. Now, this was really significant. This was the first opportunity that the common people had to read and hear the Bible in their own language. And this was hugely liberating. There was no need for a priest or a bishop to interpret and instruct them. People could study the Bible for themselves. They could be moved and shaped by the message for themselves. And chances are you are a beneficiary of that movement. So perhaps you've got a Bible uh, at home, on your bookshelf, by your beds, on the table, on the couch. Maybe you've got a, a Bible translation on your phone. Wherever you have one, you might even have one here. That would be impossible without the work of Martin Luther and a whole bunch of other reformers. Because Martin Luther agreed with the ancient psalmist when he wrote, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Luther believed that God's guidance could be found by reading and studying and meditating on the Bible. And I think that's important for us. But the real value of Scripture is that it revealed Jesus. The pages of the Bible pointed to Jesus. This is what Luther, how he put it. How he, put it. he said, if you want to interpret, if you want to understand the Bible well and confidently, set Christ before you. For he is the man to whom it applies every bit of it. 
And so this week, uh, I really encourage you, if you are reading your Bible, consider how it reveals Jesus. As you read through the pages, what is it saying about Jesus? Maybe as you dig a little bit deeper, you might be surprised by what you discover. So Luther, he was able to change his world because he changed his perspective. He ultimately rediscovered that Christianity was not about a system, wasn't even about a religion. It was about a person. And for Luther, Jesus was not just this historical figure. He was the essence of Christianity, that through faith in Jesus, God makes us right with him. And I think Luther's focus on Jesus was as crucial 500 years ago as it is now, perhaps even more so. We have increasing divisions in our world, and not just economically or politically, but socially, morally, religiously. There are distinct lines being drawn between them and between us over issues like vaccination, like government intervention, like social liberties. What fascinates me about Jesus is that he had this amazing ability to reach across borders and to break down barriers. He could see people the way that God sees people, and he could offer them the grace and the goodness of God. And I think that's important for us to remember. Curiously, Martin Luther, he knew God's grace in his life. He even experienced God's grace in his own life. But sadly, in some of his latter years, he did not always extend God's grace to others. So some of his later writings were quite aggressive and quite antagonistic. He attacked uh, the unjust practices in the church, but he also attacked people personally uh, and also collectively. He renounced some of his former friends, he blasted his critics, and he vilified the Jewish people. And so it's actually impossible to defend some of what Martin Luther wrote and some of what he said. But I think that too is a timely reminder that all of us, even, even world-changing reformers, need God's grace. And so perhaps that's Luther's greatest legacy, that in the midst of his feats, in the midst of his failings and his faults, he highlighted the truth that had been brought to the world 1,500 years before. That God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done, so none of us can boast about it, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. What Luther highlighted was that we're all sinners. We're only saved by God's grace. And what he rediscovered 504 years ago was that actually the grace of God is the most powerful force to effect change in the world. And if you are here this morning and you haven't experienced that transforming power of God's grace, then I suggest that today could be your moment in history to make that happen. 
Today is your chance to get off that treadmill, to, to put your faith in Jesus and to experience the love of God flood into your life. This is how Luther put it. He said, faith is a living, unshakable confidence in God's grace. It is so certain that someone would die a thousand times for it. This kind of trust in God's grace makes a person joyful, confident, and happy with regard to God and all creatures. And if you want to know more about that, honestly, feel free to come to talk to myself. I've got a prayer team in the corner after church. Someone with a blue tag would love to help you out. But if you have experienced God's grace in your life, then my question for you is this. Are you sharing it? Because according to the Bible, God's grace empowers us to do the good things that he has planned for us to do, which means that you have a job. You have wounds to heal. You have people to love. You have grace to give. And friends, you can change the world with that. Luther put it like this, through faith a person will do good to everyone without coercion, willingly and happily. He will serve everyone, suffer everything uh, for the love and praise of God who has shown him such grace. So today, 31st of October, 2021, could be the day where you begin to shape your world. This could be the moment where, where God's grace begins to continue out from you for the people that you live with, the people you work with, the people you play with. If you would have faith to follow what he has planned for you. Let's pray together. God, we are really grateful for those who have gone before. Men and women like Luther and a whole bunch of others have paved the way to, for, for us to enjoy the freedoms that we know. And we really don't want to take that for granted. I mean, we're, we're inspired by how they put their faith into practice, and, and we too want to live out our faith every day. We want to share that grace and that truth and see this world shaped to be the way you intended it. So we just really ask for the power and presence of Jesus to be with us just like Luther recognized that Jesus is the centerpiece of history, he's the essence of Christianity, we pray that we would live and love like Jesus every day. In his name we pray. Amen.